The following audio is from Citizens Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. If you're interested in getting involved with our family, visit citizenscharlotte.com connect. Our teaching text this evening comes from Luke 4, 1 through 13. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I will give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Amen. Amen. Well, it's good to be with you uh, tonight. If we haven't met before, my name is Tim. I get the privilege of, of being pastor here at Citizens. want to welcome you. Uh, we're a brand new church plant on the east side of Charlotte, seeking to be a Jesus-centered family on mission with him. Uh, real quick before we get into Luke 4 and faithfulness and everything we're talking about tonight, uh, I hope that you've made plans to join us next weekend for our equipping weekend. So we got a weekend full of stuff. So on Friday night, uh, we're getting the fellas together. We're going to do a chili cook-off with an excellent prize, and I don't mean that exaggeratorily. Uh, it's an excellent prize. It's really good. Uh, so we're going to eat some chili together, worship, hang out together. We got a speaker coming in to talk to us about biblical masculinity. What does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to take ownership over the areas where God has put you to see it flourish uh, in God's design? And then on Saturday morning, we're going to get the women together and we're going to have a brunch, I've been told, a wonderful, delicious brunch and some worship and fellowship as well. And then uh, the women are going to be talking about Christian friendship. What does it look like to build uh, friendships that last as adults and as adult women who love Jesus and love each other? And so these are going to be really, really good. Hope you've made plans. If you have other plans, cancel them. Come to this. It's going to be a really uh, beneficial, helpful weekend. We're trying to build some foundations as a church uh, as we get started here in our first couple of months and first couple of years. All right, Luke chapter 4 is where we're going to be. Let me pray for us. Grab a Bible, grab a bulletin, a phone, whatever you need. Uh, let's, let's get into it. Let me pray. God, thank you for who you are. God, thank you that you meet us with wherever we're coming in tonight. And for those of us who it was like kicking and screaming in our soul just to show up, and for those of us who have been looking forward to this all week and everywhere in between, God, I thank you that you meet us. I thank you that you meet us with our reservations, our hesitations, our walls, our barriers. And I pray that you will open our hearts, open our minds, God, to you, to your spirit. As we just sang about, God, that it will be true that our hearts are open to you to receive whatever it is that you have for us. And we need you. I need you. We love you. Probably sings in Christ's name. Amen. 
Amen. Well, we are continuing our series for three more weeks uh, on the fruit of the Spirit in a time of the flesh, talking about these two operating systems within us of the Spirit, God's Spirit, the Holy Spirit, that He gives you if you become a Christian, trying to make you and shape you more and more like Jesus, and the flesh, this old operating system of doing life either apart from God or in rebellion against God. And so we're looking at the fruit of the Spirit from Galatians 5 and saying, all right, what does God want to make us into? What does it look like for us to become more and more like Jesus? And so we've talked about all these different fruit in contrast to our flesh, the old self. And so tonight, we've got three more. We're talking about faithfulness in a time of compromise. Faithfulness in a time of compromise. Let's start like we have been each week by talking about compromise. In his 2018 commencement address at Harvard University, Pete Davis, who's an author, politician, philosopher, started his speech to the graduates with this. He said, I'm sure many of you have had this experience. It's late at night and you start browsing Netflix looking for something to watch. You scroll through different titles, you even read a few reviews, but you just can't commit to watching any given movie. Suddenly it's been 30 minutes and you're still stuck in infinite browsing mode. So you give up. You're too tired to watch anything now, so you cut your losses and fall asleep. I've come to believe that this is the defining characteristic of our generation, keeping our options open. There's this philosopher, Zygmunt Bauman, he called it liquid modernity. We never want to commit to any one identity or place or community, so we remain like liquid in a state that can adapt to fit any future shape. Liquid modernity is infinite browsing mode, but for everything in our lives. Liquid modernity, infinite browsing mode, keeping our options open, whatever you want to call it, this is the face of compromise in our time. Let me explain this to you. Here's why I would argue that. The driving question that motivates all of us apart from God in our day-to-day life is this. How do I get what I want? How do I get what I want? I want what I want. How do I get it? What do I have to do in my life to get what I want? And so what we do is we build our lives And we base our decisions on what maximizes the most personal happiness or personal welfare for ourselves. And we bounce or we bail on our commitments or our promises or even our convictions if they get in the way of what we want the most. Because our ultimate conviction is the conviction of personal happiness. Which then, of course, leads to compromise, right? Why stick to a promise if it makes your life more difficult? Why commit to something that makes you feel sad or leads you to suffer? Why tell the truth if it's personally costly? Why stick with your job or your friends or your church or your spouse if your needs aren't being met and you're not being fulfilled? And this is going on everywhere in our society, this compromising to maximize our personal gains. So you see it in the politician right? Who it's like every other month, they have a different position on the different issue because they're trying to gain votes or gain status or move up the ladder. This compromises the athlete who goes against the rules of their league to take performance-enhancing drugs, to hit more home runs, or to keep their spot on the team. This compromises the pastor who's willing to shift on some of his theological convictions for the sake of more people in the seats or more money in the offering. It's the employee who, you know, just kind of fudges some numbers around to avoid a bad monthly eval with their boss, or the entrepreneur who exaggerates just a, a tiny bit to investors to get a little bit more money. You give example after example after example. Our commitments in today's society are fluid and they they shift and they're shaped based upon what will maximize our happiness and pleasure. 
So we live in a time of compromise. I'll give in on whatever I need to give in to go after my highest ideal, which is personal happiness. And this pull or temptation to compromise is deeply true for those of us who are followers of Jesus. Our faith is countercultural. And I don't just mean here and now in, in 2021 Charlotte. I mean anytime, anywhere in the history of the world, you would not have been able to reconcile everything in your walk with Jesus to everything society tells you. You just can't do it. Because we're citizens of a different kingdom. We're not citizens of the place we live first and foremost. We're citizens of God's kingdom. It's the name of our church. That was a joke, thanks. <laughs> so in all times, there's this pull as followers of Jesus to compromise. But I will say specifically, here in our day and age, right now, 2021, Charlotte, North Carolina, October 3rd, which is crazy, I do think there are two specific ways we are pulled to compromise as we try to follow Christ. The first is that we're, we're pulled to a biblical or theological compromise. There's a massive pressure right now on the church at large to just fold it in or to shift on some positions that the church has held for thousands and thousands of years. Some positions that have been settled 2,000 years ago with creeds in the early church, things like the historicity of Jesus. Did Jesus actually live? A bodily resurrection, atonement for sins, the trustworthiness of scripture, human sexuality, necessity of commitment to a local church, and so on and so forth. We're pressed. Hey, can you really trust the Bible? Like that 2,000-year-old that book, like isn't that kind of outdated? Do you, can you really follow that all the way through? We're pressed to compromise biblically or, or theologically. Second compromise is a moral or relational compromise. So theological compromise is us saying, I don't think the Bible actually says this or can be trusted. Moral compromise is us saying, I know the Bible says that, but I'm going to go against it. So theological compromise is, I, I, I don't think it really says that. I'm going to shift my opinion on that interpretation. Moral compromise is, yeah, it says that, but I don't really care. I'm going to do whatever it is that I want to do. And so as we start compromising in this way, our lives start looking more American than they do Christian. Our budgets our schedules, our homes, our families, our careers, our priorities start being shaped more by the world around us, by our neighborhood, by our part of the city, by our friendships, by our coworkers, and by our discipleship to Jesus. What's so dangerous is about this pull in our flesh to compromise is that it often starts small. It is often only in one area of our lives. Right? It's this small compromise of, okay, I'm not going to go against what God calls me to here, but like in this little area, in this little way, like maybe it's okay. Like maybe I'll just shift a little bit on like what I should watch or shouldn't watch. Maybe I'll just shift a little bit in like holding that little bit of bitterness. Like I'm not a bitter person. I don't lack forgiveness, but like maybe in that one specific one, it's a little bit okay. And it starts small and this root of compromise grows and grows and grows and grows. Tim Keller, who's a famous pastor uh, in, in Christian circles in New York City, planted a church about 20 years ago in Manhattan, New York. And he is older than me, so he can say meaner things than I can. Uh, and he realized about three years into planting Redeemer in Manhattan that he was having a similar conversation over and over and over again. And these uh, largely 20 or 30-year-old folks would sit down with him, and they would say, hey, Pastor Tim, like, I just, I'm really struggling with some questions about my faith. I, just, I don't know if the Bible can be trusted. I don't know, what, what's, what do we do with the problem of evil? Is God really good? Like, I just have these questions, and I think I'm starting to walk away from my faith. And again, he's older, so he can say stuff like this. He says he learned to just kind of skip ahead in the conversation. And the first thing he would respond to that person who has all these giant questions they're bringing up about the Christian faith and about the trustworthiness of the Bible and all these things, his first response would be, so tell me who you're sleeping with. 
Because he learned it was this little moral compromise against the teachings of scripture that made them go, well, I'm going to think about this. I'm going to compromise on this, compromise on this. And it led to more and more and more. So now they're like, I don't even know if I want Jesus anymore. It's a slow fade. It's the small compromises. And so today as we consider the faithfulness, the fruit of the spirit of faithfulness, the way of Jesus of faithfulness, I don't want us to to think about or to justify ourselves with, yeah, but I'm not compromising in the big things. After all, I'm here at church. Right after all, I showed up. Right? I'm not compromising on the big things. I'm still in it a little bit with Christianity. I'm still trying to pursue Jesus in some ways. I want us to consider the small stuff. I want us to consider the little compromises, the little things in our life that we're tempted to phone it in on. We'll talk about that more as we go. But let's talk about faithfulness, right? So the way of Jesus, the fruit of the Spirit in the midst of compromises is faithfulness. Let me give us a working definition. Faithfulness is fidelity, loyalty, or trustworthiness. It's following through on what you promised. Sorry. As Christians, we are called to be faithful first and foremost to God. This means our primary loyalty is to him. We are invited through Jesus into what the Bible calls a covenant relationship with God. It's not a contractual or a contract relationship. It's a covenant relationship. And that matters in the Bible. So a contract is what you enter into with your landlord, right? A contract is where two parties agree to a particular thing. So you say, landlord, I'm going to pay you rent every month. And landlord says, that's great. I'm going to give you a place to live. And if either side of the contract the contractual person gives up on that obligation, the contract is broken. That is different than a covenant. A covenant says, I'm going to uphold my end of the bargain regardless of how you uphold it. The the clearest, not perfect, but the the semi-clearest picture we have of this in our world today is that of marriage. Marriage is a covenant. It's two parties in their vows saying, I'm going to stay faithful to you. I'm going to uphold my end. It's not 50-50 in marriage. It's 100 and 100. I'm all in on this relationship. In fact, this marriage relationship is often used throughout the scriptures to talk about the way that God loves his people. So in the scriptures, Jesus is often presented as the bridegroom and the church, his people collectively are his bride. Exodus 19, Hosea 2, Ephesians 5. There's this marriage-like fidelity between us and God that we break all the time, that we rebel against all the time, that we don't have any interest in keeping, but God stays faithful to us. Throughout the scriptures, this faithfulness, particularly uh, in the book of Hosea, is this call where we would see the faithfulness of God and we would respond in faithfulness and fidelity to him that we would see over and over and over again when we rebel, when we sin, when we go against God's design, that he remains faithful to his people and we'd respond in repentance and faithfulness back. This is the call of the fruit of faithfulness. I think a really good phrase to sum this up is the title of one of my all-time favorite books. It's by uh, the late Pastor Eugene Peterson. And he calls our discipleship to Jesus, quote, a long obedience in the same direction. That's what we mean when we say faithfulness, a long obedience in the same direction. He says near the beginning of the book, he has this great quote. He says this, he says, there is a great market for religious experience in our world. There's little enthusiasm for the patient acquisition of virtue, little inclination to sign up for a long apprenticeship in what earlier generations of Christians called holiness. That's the essence of the fruit of faithfulness. We sign up for a long obedience in the same direction. Day in and day out, little step by little step, painful, 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 difficult, 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 as we mature more and more into the image of Christ. 
That's the call of faithfulness. What does it mean to step into the fruit of faithfulness? It means that more and more over years of following Jesus, our lives would be marked by saying yes to God more and more and no to the things of our flesh. We see this clearly in Luke chapter 4. See this clearly in this story of Jesus. And so here's what's going to happen. We're going to look at this story from Luke chapter 4, and here's kind of the setup from it. So Jesus is baptized. He's led into the desert by the Spirit. He fasts for 40 days, which is an incredible amount of time to go without food. And then the devil shows up, and he's going to tempt Jesus. And he probably tempted him all 40 days, but we have three particular details. And so what I want to do is I want to look at these three temptations. And I want to show us these kind of three underlying temptations behind our temptation to compromise. So we're going to consider these three clear temptations from Luke 4. And I want us to see how these three temptations are kind of underneath a lot of the poles that we have to compromise on our faithfulness to Jesus. So we're going to start in verse 1. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. Here comes the devil, verse 3. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. All right, here's the first temptation to compromise. The devil tempts Jesus with provision. Tempts Jesus with provision. We've got to take our Christian glasses off. All right, it's easy to read this and be like, Yeah, but he's Jesus, so like, he's not that hungry after going without food for 40 days, Right? But you got to remember, he was fully God and fully man. So he's hungry, okay? This is not like, he's just easier for him. Think about how hungry you are right now because dinner's a little delayed, right? He's hungry, 40 days in the wilderness. And then the devil shows up and notice what he says. If you are the son of God. Now, if you know the context, in Luke chapter 3, Jesus had gone into the wilderness to be baptized by John the Baptist. And when he comes out of the water, God the Father speaks over God the Son, what? You are my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. This is before Jesus had done any ministry, before he had done anything. God the Father speaks over God the Son. You are my son. I am pleased with you. And the first thing the devil questions is what? Are you really? If you're really the son of God, here's what you would do. You would feed yourself. You would take ownership over your hunger. You would do something to provide bread for yourself. In other words, here's what's going on. Satan tempted Jesus to use his power to satisfy his own desires rather than trusting in God to supply all that he needed. Let me say that again. Satan tempted Jesus to use his power to satisfy his own desires rather than trusting in God to supply all that he needed. Hey, will you give in and not trust the Lord's provision? Now, chances are none of us are going to be tempted to make stones into bread over the next couple weeks. If you are, call me. That's weird. This is not our temptation to make stones into bread, but it is our temptation to compromise for provision, right? We don't trust the faithfulness of God. We don't trust his loving care with our needs or our desires, and so we compromise. Here's how it might look for you. For some of us, we don't trust God to provide our belonging or our value that we need or want, and so we have to compromise. We have to date the person that we know we shouldn't. For others of us, we don't trust God to provide true rest in Jesus that he offers us through the gospel. And so we have to phone it in and we have to be lazy or apathetic towards our kids or our spouse. For others of us, we don't trust God to provide financially. So we have to cut some corners at work. We have to make it look like we're doing better. We got to shift a few numbers here and there so that we don't get in trouble with the man. All of this is a temptation to compromise to provide what God promises to provide. You feel this 
all the time myself in regards to this church. Church planning, pastoring is a weighty task. And I say this a lot because it's true. God has been overwhelmingly and abundantly kind to our church in the last 18 months. He just has. He's been so kind and faithful. And if I'm not thinking correct, if I'm operating in the flesh, this pull to compromise for provision is so strong, like on a minute-by-minute basis type of strong, because I can begin to doubt in Matthew 18 that Jesus doesn't say, I will build my church, but rather that he says, Tim will build my church. So I can wrestle with this. God, no, I got to shift some things. I can't say that too strongly in a sermon because then some people will be mad at me and they'll leave and then our church is going to tank and explode. Like it always goes worst case scenario, right? Like it's never just like, and then I have a hard day. It's always like, and then something catches on fire. Like it's always like the worst version. Ah, I have to have that meaning and I don't want to say that thing and I don't know how they're going to react and they're going to be mad at me and I really don't want people to be mad at me ever. What do I do? Doubting his provision constantly. Well, maybe if we just shift on this, maybe if we just pull back on that conviction, maybe if we just don't push as hard in this area of discipleship, maybe people will be a little more okay with us and then maybe they'll be around more and maybe we'll see what we want to see happen. All this pull provision, doubting the goodness of God, doubting the kindness of God, doubting that he is committed to building his church, even if that's not citizens. But do I trust him in that? Am I willing to not surrender or to compromise for that? Do we trust the Lord with our provision? Or do you, you do what you say you're going to do? You're going to take care of us. And that might not look like I want it to look. And so that's some of the pull of compromise is that I want to compromise to make provision look like I want it to look rather than trusting his hand. That's the first. He tempts Jesus to compromise for provision. Number two. Actually, let's read first. Verse five. And the devil took him and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you, I will give all this authority in their glory for it has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. So the first temptation is for provision. The second is for power. The devil tempts Jesus with power. Here's what's happening in these verses. Satan is attempting or he's offering to Jesus without the cross and suffering what God the Father has promised through the cross and suffering. Right? So he says to Jesus, hey, worship me and all of this will be yours. Well, here's the deal. That's already Jesus's. That's going to be his, but it has to be on the other side of the cross. And so the devil says, hey, if you will worship me, I'll give you everything and you don't have to go through the pain. You don't have to go through the suffering. I'll just give it to you. You can, you can rule and reign over all the kingdoms of the earth and you don't have to sacrifice. You don't have to die. You don't have to go to the grave. Jesus says, no, you shall worship the Lord your God. He knows that the kingdom of God, the way up is really down. Suffering, sacrifice, it's the way of the kingdom of Jesus. Now again, just like stones into bread, most of us aren't going to be taken up to a mountain and offered the kingdoms of the world tomorrow. Most of us aren't going to be tempted to compromise for the sake of ruling over the kingdoms of the world, but we will be compromised for the sake of ruling over our kingdoms. We'll be pulled to compromise for the sake of having power in whatever domain or sphere we have it in to compromise for, for power, to not trust ourselves to God. I, th I think one of the clearest examples of this, this compromising by Christians for power right now, is in the area of politics. Can we talk about it? Can we go there? Before you get mad at me, this is true on both sides, left or right. Both sides compromise for the sake of power. So on one side, we're guilty of compromising on moral standards of elected officials, or we hand over our gospel witness for the sake of who we want to win elections. And so we do things like use force to take over the Capitol building and we say it's in the name of Jesus, which is evil and wrong. 
But also on the other side, we compromise on historical doctrines of the church for thousands of years, and we phone it in on things like sexuality and identity and the sanctity of life so that we're not canceled. Both sides, left or right, compromise for power. We don't trust that God's on the throne, ruling and reigning and risen forever, and so we got to do whatever it takes to put ourselves or our views or our party on the throne instead. Because we think who's going to be president and who's going to rule over our country is more important than who rules over the world. King Jesus. So we compromise for power. And that's the big picture. We do this on our day-to-day lives as well, right? We compromise for power in the workplace, compromise for power in relationships. We try to, well, I'm not going to withhold forgiveness. I'm going to compromise on what God calls me to, which is to be faithful to forgive so that I can have power over the person that I'm withholding forgiveness from. We compromise for power. We do it in every sphere of our lives. Provision, power. Let's look at verse 9 for number 3. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, notice this, the devil's quote in scripture, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Provision, power, number three, protection. The devil tempts Jesus with protection. I love that the devil starts thinking he's slick. Like he's like, all right, you're quoting scripture to me. I'm going to quote scripture back to you, Jesus, albeit horribly and way out of context and not applicable to the situation. But he says, hey, throw, you know, throw yourself down. The angels are going to come protect you. He won't let you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus sees right through it. And he quotes scripture back. And he says, no, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus knows he has the full protection of God the Father. He knows nothing happens in his life outside of the will of God, and that will is to take him to the cross. So he knows, I don't need to test the protection of God because I know he protects me. I know he protects his own. This is a pull on us as well that we compromise for self-protection. I think the easy example to give here is in sharing our faith. All right, so we did a series all about mission uh, from the book of Acts last spring. We talked about mission from the series on work. And consistently in my own life and just in pastoring this church, the, the, the barriers to sharing our faith that I hear most often are either I feel ill-equipped or I'm afraid. And that afraid looks like a number of different things. It can look like I don't want to hurt their feelings. I don't want to mess up their relationship. I don't think I'm like a weird Christian person. But, but a lot of that, the second excuse of fear is self-protection. Right? It's, I don't want to have them view me like I'm weird. I don't want them to like ostracize me or cast me out or like not want to be my friend. And so we self-protect rather than entrusting ourselves to God. And so we compromise on the biblical mandate to take the gospel to those around us. Compromise, provision, power, protection. And the call on us, the call to faithfulness is to become more like Jesus to step into this fruit of faithfulness, to not compromise, to not give just a little bit of leeway, to take sin seriously and God's word seriously. And so the question is how? How do we do this? How do we cultivate the fruit of faithfulness? Well, I think Jesus gives us a really beautiful pattern in Luke 4, right? Two things in particular, God's spirit and God's word. Do you notice God's spirit? The book ends of this chapter, right? Luke 4, Luke 4 1 says Jesus full of the Holy Spirit led by the Spirit into the wilderness. And then if you look at verse 14 of Luke 4, it says Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. So on both ends of Jesus being in the wilderness and all the way through, he is full of the Holy Spirit. And so when the devil comes to tempt him, he's full of the Holy Spirit. And it's one of the ways that he pushes back against the temptation to compromise. And this needs to be true of us as well. If you remember Galatians 5, 
right, where we get the fruit of the Spirit passage. Right before that, in Galatians 5, 16, Paul writes, keep in step with the Spirit. In our battle against compromise, we have to remember that it's not Tim versus flesh. It's Spirit versus flesh, right? It's not us on our own trying not to compromise, trying to follow Jesus. It's us with the power of the Spirit, God's power working through us. And so we keep in step with the Spirit. So the first is we need God's Spirit to fight against compromise. The second is that we need God's Word. God's word over and over and over again in this passage. Verse four, Jesus says, it is written. Verse eight, Jesus says, it is written. Verse 12, Jesus says, it is said. He keeps using God's word all of the time. This is going to nerd out for a second, but follow with me. Jesus here is the true and better Adam. Here's what I mean by that. Adam in Genesis three, right? The devil comes as the great liar and he entices them. And what does he say to Adam and Eve in Genesis three? He says, did God really say? Can you trust him? Did God actually say that? And here the devil shows up in the same way. And he says, if you are the son of God, can you really trust God? Can you really trust what God has said? And Jesus uses the very words of God to fight against temptation. This is the invitation that we have from Psalm 119, 19, where the psalmist says, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. One of the practices this week on your practice guide is to memorize scripture to know God's word as a battleground against compromise and temptation in our lives. All right, if I can just pause here real quick. I know I'm going long. I apologize. Um, I don't apologize. It's God's word. I know I'm going long. <laughs> Teaching teams that don't apologize, and I have it in here. I should have taken it out. Uh, <laughs> here's the deal. Let me just give you a, a pastoral word of encouragement to you. Uh, do not grow weary in the small things of faithfulness. Like if I can just encourage us real quick from my heart, I can just sense in our church a spirit of weariness. Just just a spirit of like, I'm just tired. It's hard following Jesus. It's hard saying yes to the things of God. It's hard going for it day in and day out. I just feel beat up and I feel, I'm just tired. I'm just weary. And I know for many of us, we've gone through some years. It's not months anymore, it's years. Some of us, those years have been full of incredible amounts of transition, right? New city, new church, new job, new friendships. For some of us, new families, new marriages, new relationships, like just so much transition. And so we're weary from that. And then for others of us, there's been no transition over the last two years, and we're worried from the lack of transition. We feel stuck. That is this my life. Is this my lot? Is this what I'm going to do for the next 40, 50, 20, 10, 5 years, however long you give me? And so there's just a spirit of weariness. And I'm not saying this as a you. I'm saying this as an us. I was back in Columbia on Thursday, and I ran into Pastor Ant. He came and preached uh, a few months ago for me on, on Ephesians, kids and families, all that fun stuff. Um, and he just asked me, like, hey, how you doing? And I could tell it was one of those, like, leading questions. Like, you're asking it because you want to encourage me or tell me something. And I said, man, honestly, I'm just, I'm just tired. Like, I'm just, there's just something deep inside of me that just feels weary. And it's weird to say that because I just came off of vacation (laughs) and I'm tired. He said, yeah, man, just to be honest, like, this is probably the most tired I've been in 15 years of ministry. He's like, every pastor I talk to, it feels like we're just walking through the mud. It feels like we're trying and we're taking steps. And it's not just pastors. It's like their whole congregations. It's like followers of Jesus. It feels like we're just walking through the mud on this holiness thing. Weariness feel this? Do you, do you feel this? And here's the, the temptation of weariness is that there's this pull to phone it in because of our weariness on the little stuff without realizing that it's compromising in the little stuff. It's actually shaping our character. 
It's phoning in on those little things. Well, I'm just tired, so I'm just not going to do that. I'm just tired, I'm just not going to serve my spouse tonight. Well, I'm just tired, I'm just not going to show up to group tonight. Well, I'm just tired, I'm just not going to read my Bible this morning. Well, I'm just tired, I'm just not going to pray. Well, I'm just tired, I'm just not going to call that friend. I'm just tired, I'm just not going to love my kids. I'm just tired, I'm just not. Fill in the blank. I love what what Paul says in Galatians 6, right after the, the passage on the fruit of the Spirit. This is what he says. He says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Paul says, don't grow weary in doing good, for in due season we will reap the reward of godliness. There's an incredible story, I don't think we've told it here before, there's an incredible story of this from church history of the Tin Boom family. Uh, Corey Tin Boom is kind of the famous one, her father, Casper, and she uh, writes a memoir called The Hiding Place. If you haven't read it, it's very, very good. And she tells the story in The Hiding Place of her family turning their home into a hiding place for Jews during World War II while the Germans were occupying her home nation of the Netherlands. And so they were hiding them there. And she tells the story about how they were willing to have courage and to sacrifice as a family, even when it got hard, even when it got dangerous, that their home kind of became known as the place in town where if you need help, you go to the Ten Booms home. Spiritual help, financial help, emotional help, whatever you need, you go to the house of the Ten Booms. And she says that what's compelling about this is that in the months and years before the war started, their family had a practice where every morning during breakfast, they would gather around the table while they were eating, and their father, Casper, would read one chapter of the Bible. He would ask one question, what stands out to you? They would say a quick prayer, and they would go to wherever they had that day, work, school, whatever it may be. And she says, some days it was awesome. Like, she's super honest in the memoir. I love it. She's like, some days it was awesome. And he asked that question, and we're like talking, and you can just kind of feel the tangible power of the Spirit of God in the room, and we're encouraging one another. And some days he would read a passage, and he'd be like, what stood out to you? And it would just be crickets for about five minutes. And then he would say, great, Jesus, thank you. And we'd all go to work or school or whatever we had that day. But the, what it was mattered, what was important is it was daily Every day, every morning, gathering at the table, reading God's word, praying together as a community. And so she says, of course, when the first person knocked on our door needing help, we had read about Jesus. We had read for years about God's heart for the broken. We had read for years about his heart for the lowly and the outcast, those that society rejects. And so it's like, of course, we're going to welcome you in regardless of the cost. Of course we would sacrifice. Of course we would put our lives on the line to serve you and to care for you. Eventually, uh, if you know the story, the entire family gets captured and taken to one of the Nazi concentration camps. And when they arrive, one of the guards actually comes up to Casper, her father. And he says, listen, and I'm sure it's in German, so it's more eloquent than this. But he says, hey, I really want to send you home. Like, you're old, you don't belong here, like, you're not the enemy, like, I really want to send you home, but I need you to promise that you're going to stop taking in Jewish people. And so she says, Casper, her father, replies, whether you send me home or not is up to you, but I'm going to open my door to the first person who knocks on it tomorrow. And here's the deal, I know a lot of us really want to be the type of people who in the crazy moments of crisis would respond with courage and faithfulness to King Jesus. But I also know that many of us, myself included, aren't willing to do the small acts of faithfulness that turn us into those types of people. 
So it's really easy to go, yeah, that's going to be me. I'm going to stand up for Jesus in the hard moments of crisis. And we can forget, like many have famously said, that character and faithfulness is not, re- is not made in times of crisis. It's revealed in times of crisis. It's made in the small moments. It's made in the little things, little decision, day in and day out. To become the type of person who's faithful in the big, we have to be faithful in the small. And here's the gospel encouragement, because I I want to encourage you in this. Here's the beauty of Luke chapter 4, because it's easy to be like, hey, be faithful to Jesus. I know you're weary. Stop being weary. Just go be faithful. And that's not my heart. Here's my heart. The most beautiful thing about Luke 4 is that Jesus doesn't just give us a pattern to follow. He gives us a person to believe in. That's the beauty of Luke 4. Luke 4 is not this passage where we go, you know what? Jesus, through God's spirit, through God's word, he defeated temptation. That's how we defeat temptation. Go get busy being faithful. That's not the sole call of Luke 4. That's a good call. That's an obedient to the scriptures call. That's a faithful call. But the more beautiful thing is that Jesus is perfectly faithful because he knows that we are not. Jesus is perfectly faithful because he knows that we can preach a sermon on faithfulness and I can stand up here at 545 on a Sunday and say, be faithful. And I know I got stuff to confess on Tuesday about my faithlessness, about my lack of fidelity to King Jesus. And that's the beauty of the gospel is that Jesus is perfect when we are not and because we are not. Jesus actually gives us his perfection. He gives us his faithfulness because we know, Jesus knows you cannot be faithful. You cannot uphold God's standard. You cannot live into the perfection of, of what God calls you to. So Jesus does. And then he takes our sin on the cross and gives us his faithfulness in our place. So when, Jesus sees, so when God sees us, he sees us as weary. He sees us as tired. He sees us as broken. He sees us in all of that. But here's the deal. He doesn't see our lack of fidelity to him. He doesn't see our lack of faithfulness to him. He doesn't see our lack of a way of obeying him. He doesn't see our lack of desire to follow him. He sees Jesus' faithfulness in our place. That's the beauty of the gospel. It's what we celebrate every time we gather together. That Hebrews 10, as we said in our call to worship, is true. This is what it says. It says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised, not because we are faithful, for he who promised is faithful. And that's the call of faithfulness. That we look and go, okay, yeah, the, the one way that I received the faithfulness of Christ is by remembering that I'm faithless. That I don't follow Jesus how he calls me to. That I don't follow him. That I don't, that I do compromise. That I do give in all of the time. And yet Jesus was faithful on my behalf. And the craziness of the gospel is that the only prerequisite to accepting the faithfulness of Christ for us, God's forgiveness, Christ's righteousness, is that we acknowledge and own before God that we can't be faithful. That's the call of the gospel. That's the prerequisite. If we come to God and say, you know what, God, I've been faithful. God says, no, you haven't. That's the whole point. That's why Jesus lives a perfect life. That's why he says no to every temptation under the sun. Tried in every way that we are, Hebrews says. And it was without sin so that he could go to the cross, be the perfect sacrifice, take our sin, and give us his righteousness. That's the good news of the gospel that we believe. And we celebrate and we remember. And then it's that faithfulness of Christ that compels us out to be faithful. To try and to fail and to try again. Knowing that Christ's faithfulness is enough. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for who you are. God, thank you for your word. God, thank you for Luke 4. God, I thank you for this call on our lives, the fruit of faithfulness that you invite us into. God, I I praise you that by the power of your spirit, you give us some ability to to try to occasionally be faithful, God. But I thank you even more so for the goodness of the gospel. 
that Christ was faithful in our place. The good news of Luke 4 is not just this pattern to follow, that we need the Word and the Spirit to say no to sin. It's not just that, but it gives us a perfect, spotless, sacrificial Lamb of God to believe in. And so I pray for those of us in the room who aren't trusting in Jesus, who don't uh, follow Jesus, who wouldn't claim to be Christians, God, that we would see that we can't save ourselves. God, that having the highest law of our lives of happiness doesn't work. It's not going to fulfill us. It's not going to satisfy. But our satisfaction and our belonging is only found in the forgiveness offered to us at the cross. We would trust in you. We would own our own lack of faithfulness. God, I pray for those of us in the room who are followers of Jesus. God, would you help us to first and foremost see Christ's faithfulness on our behalf? See his righteousness? See his perfection? See his ability to say no, to never compromise on any of your will? We would believe that and we would receive his righteousness for us and that would lead us then to hold fast to the confession of our hope. Not because we are faithful, because you are faithful. You're going to accomplish your purposes in our salvation, God. Help us this week as we seek to live faithful lives to you. I mean, near to us, God, give us the power of your spirit. God, we love you. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.